Pastor Pat is away, and he has asked me to fill the pulpit for him this morning. My name's Mike Holloway. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at Omaha Bible Church. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to dive into the Old Testament. Um, the weather this morning is uh, maybe appropriate for this passage. Uh, if I were to give a weather forecast for this passage, it's uh, dark and stormy with little breaks of sunshine poking through. Uh, I haven't seen the sunshine outside yet today, but uh, that's kind of the idea. Our passage today is mostly about sin and judgment, but the light of grace and hope makes small appearances that we want to pay attention to this morning. As we come to 1 Samuel 2, we'll be picking it up in verse 12. These are spiritually dark times in the nation Israel. God's chosen people had been redeemed by the Lord from slavery in Egypt. Joshua had led them into the promised land. Yet now, as we come to 1 Samuel 2 in Scripture, Scripture tells us that every man is doing that which is right in his own eyes. That's Judges 21, verse 25. So sin is abounding in the land. And as we shall see, the worst kind of sin, idolatry, has become rampant in public among the religious leaders of Israel. This darkness has descended even upon the dwelling place of God, among the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is kept, and among those who serve the Lord in His tabernacle where the sacrifices are offered. 1 Samuel chapter 1 told us the familiar Bible story of Hannah. How Hannah, despite all attempts, despite her prayers, was childless. Adding to her own internal struggle was the external pressure she faced due to the fact she was being arrogantly tormented by a woman in her own house who was having a bevy of babies. Then Hannah makes a famous vow recorded in chapter 1. Verse 11, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And Hannah gives birth to a son, and he is named Samuel. And true to her vow, she hands Samuel, her only son, over to Eli, the high priest of Israel, to work in the tabernacle, to serve the Lord there with these words from chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord." Samuel is an important person in these first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. He represents a change. A change that is coming to Israel. In response to the birth of Samuel, in, in response of her giving Samuel over to tabernacle service, to temple service, Hannah breaks out with praise and prayer of the Lord in the first ten verses of chapter 2 with the words that express her joy but also carry a meaning that goes far beyond the personal rejoicing of Hannah. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. She says, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, that is, my strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. 
There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Go down to verse 9 with me. He, that is God, will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. There is a reason we are introduced to humble, patient, continually praying Hannah in chapter 1. She displays the godly character of those who are trusting the Lord. There is also a reason we are introduced to Samuel in chapter 1. He is going to be used of the Lord to raise up and anoint the chosen king of Israel, King David. That is what the entire books of First and Second Samuel are about. They are about the raising up of a king in Israel, a faithful king. And there is also a reason that Hannah says in her prayer, that the Lord knows all, that actions are weighed in his balance, that the wicked will be cut off in darkness, and that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And in contrast, Hannah's prayer also makes clear the Lord brings salvation to his people, gives strength to the weak, to the humble, guards the paths of their feet, and promises to raise up a king for the deliverance of the nation. And often, as we see in our passage today, the Lord is doing His work in secret, behind the scenes where we can't see, until He gives us a glimpse of what's going on, how He is going to bring justice to His people, how He is going to show love and deliver them from the evil that is around them. I've got five points in my sermon today. Point one is faithless religious leaders stand against the Lord and His people. Verses 12 to 17. Look at verse 12 with me. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. This is a summary statement of the rest of this chapter. Now the actions that put their wickedness and betrayal of the Lord will be put on display at the tabernacle of God, where the Ark of the Covenant is kept This is the Lord's dwelling place amongst His people. At this point in Israel's history, it's in the town of Shiloh, about 40 miles north of Jerusalem. Look at verse 13 with me. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Well, in verses 13 and 14, we have a worshiper cooking up a portion of the peace offering that he and his family will enjoy together. And strolling by the pot is one of the ever-present servants of the priests. 
who takes his three-pronged barbecue fork, plunges it into the pot, and whatever comes out, he takes back to the place where the priest is living, to his dwelling place. Now, this is wrong. Because part of the offering in Leviticus 7 tells us that the priest already received the breast and the right leg of the animal. But no bonus was allowed. That was all they got. The rest was for the worshiper and his family. But things are about to get even worse. Look at verse 15. Moreover, before the fat was was burned, note here that Leviticus 3 tells us the fat was to be burned in honor of the Lord. Uh, The fat was considered to be the choicest piece of the meat. And so that was to be given to the Lord. He was to get the best. So moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Here we have the return of the priest lackey, the priest servant. And this time he demands fresh, uncooked meat from the worshiper. And when the priest, when the man protests, reminding the servant of what the law of God actually says, the servant turns into a thug into a kind of enforcer who will rob the meat from the worshiper by any means necessary, including not just intimidation, but violence. This is the fruit that results when the spiritual leaders of God's people are spiritually bankrupt. It's no wonder every man was doing that which was right in his own eyes. They were following the example that was set for them by the sons of their high priest Eli the sons who are in line to become high priest in the future. So now, in the midst of this ugly, sinful, despicable display of unfaithfulness, we have a ray of hope. A taste of God's grace is about to shine through. That brings us to point two. The Lord brings hope in the midst of a spiritual wasteland. Verses 18 to 21. Look at with me at verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod. That's the garment of a priest. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. There are two aspects of the Lord's love and grace for his people on display here, here in the middle of this sin and judgment. First, Samuel is mentioned five times in and immediately next to our passage this morning. Two of them are here at the beginning and end of the little four-verse section, one in verse 18, 
says Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And again at the end of verse 21, and the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. But also look at the end of verse 11 of chapter 2. Immediately before our passage, it says of Samuel, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now also look down at verse 26. It reads, Now the boy, Samuel, continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And the fifth mention of Samuel is immediately after our passage, at the very beginning of chapter 3 in verse 1. It reads, Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Well, question for you. Why does the Lord have the human author of the scripture, of 1 Samuel, intersperse these five little notes about Samuel into this short section of scripture? When you find this kind of thing repeated over and over in scripture, it's a good time to stop and ask why. Why, oh why, does the Lord arrange the scripture this particular way? Why does he tell us five different times? What's he trying to communicate? What does he want us to see? Well, first, he's telling us this is important. Over and over and over and over again, the Lord is telling us Samuel is important. Pay attention to Samuel. God's doing something here through Samuel. It's like the Lord is whispering to us, in the midst of all this sin, in the midst of the sin of Eli's sons, don't forget about Samuel. Don't forget about Samuel. I'm working through Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. He's here. God is preparing Samuel to take over as the spiritual leader of his people. Second, in the context of the depth of the sin involved in chapter 2, and what we will learn in chapter 3, the Lord is telling us that he's at work behind the scenes. He's preparing Samuel to take over for the ungodly priestly leadership of his people. From the outside... It looks like the Lord is doing nothing except watching sin take over at the tabernacle. But the Lord is telling us otherwise. He's going to rescue his people from this dark spiritual wasteland by replacing dark spiritual leadership. Now, sometimes it can seem like during hard times in our own lives, we somehow talk ourselves into believing that God has forgotten about us or he doesn't care. Or that he's doing nothing. This passage tells us, don't let appearances fool you. We know the Lord loves us. We know he cares for us. And the cross is the ultimate evidence of that. God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. And while that is enough to demonstrate his love, Jesus has given us his spirit who lives within us and is working in us to grow us into Christ's likeness each and every day. We need to be reminded of that over and over and over again. Our Father loves us. He is working in us, pruning us so that we might bear more fruit. When we forget, we need to whisper to ourselves, don't forget Jesus. 
Don't forget Jesus. Another aspect of God's love and grace for his people in verses 19 to 21 is seen in the tenderness and the love that Hannah has for her only son. In that every year she brings Samuel a little robe. A little robe to go over his ephod. And then we see the tender love and grace of the Lord here for Hannah in giving her five additional children. Now that might be a little more kindness from the Lord that many of you are looking for. But for Hannah, it's a marvelous grace. It's a marvelous answer to her prayers and a great blessing from God. So here we have in these four little verses a ray of hope from God. And interspersed throughout our passage, don't forget about Samuel. While Eli's sons are ministering sinfully in the temple, little Samuel is ministering faithfully in the temple. Point three, the depth of spiritual betrayal grows deeper. Verses 22 to 26. Now the sins of Eli's sons compound sin upon sin at the Lord's house as they turn it into a brothel and do so with such audacity that it is public knowledge. In other words, the scandal is growing. Look at verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Notice, first of all, Eli reminds his sons that if you have a dispute between men, surely we can find somebody to mediate that dispute. Surely we can find a judge or, or someone to, to settle it. But when you have a disagreement with God, when you've sinned against God, only God can provide the mediator. Only God can provide the one who can go between. But that last section, that last sentence, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Let's think about that for just a minute. If you go over it too quickly, you might think that it says that since Eli's sons didn't listen to him, the Lord decided, listen to their father, the Lord decided to put them to death. Let's read it one more time. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Did you catch it this time? The text says that Eli's sons would not listen to their father because, that's what that word for there means, because the Lord had decided to put them to death. Their sin was so egregious, was, was so ongoing, was, was, was so in the face of God that God turns them over to their sin and its consequences. Eli's son's failure to respond to their father's message was the result of the Lord's judgment upon them for their sin. Verses 24 and 25 are saying 
that for their ongoing, persistent, continual rebellion, the Lord had decided to bring judgment upon them in this world and put them to death. In effect, by rejecting the grace of God in such a hardened and final way, Eli's sons had admitted no possibility for repentance. Evidently, Eli's two sons had reached a point of no return. This is not a new concept in the Scriptures. During the plagues in Egypt, before the exodus of Israel, Pharaoh first hardened his own heart against Israel, and later God hardens Pharaoh's heart. In the book of Hebrews, regarding those who have stubbornly and repeatedly and finally rejected the offering of Christ's death on the cross for their sins, it says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 to 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be reserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, Eli's sons have fallen into his hands. For us today, if we reject the good news about Jesus Christ, there is no other sacrifice for sin available. There is no other way to heaven. For Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So too, for these faithless sons of Eli, their behavior as leaders of God's people simply reveals their hearts and their settled rebellion against the Lord and paved the way for the Lord's righteous judgment of them. Two more brief points before we move on. First, the Lord consistently throughout the Scripture judges false religious leaders harshly for leading people astray. They are portrayed by Jesus as wolves in sheep's clothing, looking to devour their victims. Some of Jesus' strongest words of condemnation in the Bible is toward the Pharisees of his day for their hypocrisy. In Matthew 23, he calls them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. On the outside, they look good. But on the inside, there's the stench of death and rot and decay. But let's not forget the love and kindness of God towards ordinary people. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus portrays sinners in contrast to false religious leaders, as lost sheep who need a shepherd. His invitation for all those who are weary and heavy laden is to come to him and find rest. That's a complementary truth to the judgment of God upon unfaithful priests and unfaithful prophets and, yes, unfaithful pastors. Convicting for me this week as I studied this passage to evaluate my own life in light of what God says about faithless religious leaders. 
Well, here the Lord goes again now in verse 26. After this really dark section, he reminds us that he is working for his people. Even in the midst of the filthy swamp of these religious wolves, verse 26 says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Luke borrows from this. These are almost the exact words Luke uses to describe Jesus' youth in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. God is saying to us and to Israel, once again, don't forget Samuel. Don't forget Samuel. God is working. God is working. Brings us to point four. The Lord reveals his judgment to Eli and God's mercy for his people. Verses 27 to 34. Let's look first at verses 27 and 28. They show the grace of God towards Eli and his sons. Verse 27, And there came a man of God to Eli. A man of God in the Old Testament is a prophet. A prophet of God comes to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him, that is Aaron and his family, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. God had graciously chosen Eli's predecessors, Eli's family, to serve as priests, to serve God in a special way that no other family in Israel got to do. Well, what did they do with that? Well, here comes the accusation in verse 29. God gets to the heart of the charge against Eli in verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? The Lord's charge against Eli as he, he honored his sons above the Lord. There's a name for that in the Old Testament. It's called idolatry. Loving anything more than God is idolatry. Eli loved his sons more than God. You might ask, why is God judging Eli here? Didn't he tell his sons to stop it? Well, it's true. He did tell them to stop it. But that's all he did. He essentially gave them a slap on the wrist and then washed his hands of all responsibility and accountability. Yet Eli was the high priest of Israel. It was within Eli's power to remove them from their priestly office. It was within his power to put them on the unemployment line with bad references. He may not have been able to stop them from pursuing immorality, but he sure could have removed them from their positions of power and influence. Instead, he essentially did nothing. Eli, as the most powerful and influential leader in Israel, was willing to be kind and gentle in understanding of his son's behavior. He was willing to tolerate the little boys will be boys kind of attitude 
in God's house. Eli preferred to curry favor with his sons rather than with God. God sees this as a betrayal. And we will see that God's announcement of judgment in verses to 30 to 34, that Eli's mistake is a deadly one. Verse 30, the judgment is pronounced. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your fathers, in other words, your family, should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Strong words. Tough section of scripture. The judgment upon Eli and Hophni and Phinehas is harsh and runs deep. Interesting, this is the first time their names are mentioned in the chapter. It's almost as if God didn't want to give them any more ink than possible. He just calls them two sons most of the way. But in the title of this section, I said this was judgment. But I also said it showed the mercy of God. The question is, who is God merciful to here? Who is God merciful to by removing Eli and his sons from the priestly line? Well, God's being merciful to his people. God brings the man of God, bringing the word of God, in an invasion of judgment to Eli and his sons. The man of God is sent forth on a mission to restore godly leadership over God's people. Hoshni and Phinehas threaten to destroy God's people. Instead, Hoshni and Phinehas will be destroyed to spare God's people. This is an act of mercy. Yes, even a saving act by the Lord as he protects his people from these ravenous wolves, these religious leaders. Brings us to point five. The Lord's relentless love will provide a godly priest for his people. Verse 35. Look at it with me. The Lord says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Even in the midst of an apparently desperately bad and difficult spiritual situation, God is working. 
And we, here we are told, he is working for his people by raising up a faithful priest. Sin and rebellion does not send our almighty God into a state of confusion or frustration. Instead, it simply means it's time for action. Action at the right time and place. And he promises here, not only a faithful priest, but he shall serve in the house of his anointed, that is, his king forever. His king forever. God is going to raise up a king as well as a priest. The same language is at the end of Hannah's song in verse 10 of chapter 2. God will raise up an anointed one, a king, to rule over his people forever. So while God for a time, in his own purpose, might seem to be dealing in a way that is frustrating for his people, God may at times suffer arrogant and immoral and unrepentant leadership of his people. The Lord promises in verse 35 that he will have a faithful priest, that he will have a faithful king. And while in the near term, that king will be King David, one from the line of King David will sit on the throne on the house, in the house of King David forever, will sit on the throne. That priest who will rule, that ultimate faithful priest and that ultimate faithful king is going to be Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who is from the house of David. He is a descendant of King David. He will be the one who rescues his people from sin and from sinful leaders. Jesus is the faithful king and priest who in the fullness of time came to save his people from their sins and who will come again to bring all his people home to glory with him to a place he has prepared for us. Let's pray. God, we are amazed. We are amazed at your faithful and your relentless love for your people. We are thankful, Father, that you did not leave them in the hands of false teachers, of false leaders, of false priests, and that you removed the, the ungodly line of Eli and Hoshni and Phinehas and have ultimately given us a faithful high priest in Jesus Christ. And you have given us a faithful king in Jesus Christ. And while we praise you for your grace and your mercy and your love for your people, we also must praise you, Father, for your judgment of sin and for your judgment of those who would be opposed to you and rebel against you and lead your people astray. I pray, Father, you would keep us humble before you, that we are sinners that we are delivered through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.